0: everybody, and welcome back to the Between Two Bees podcast brought to you by the B to SMB Institute. I'm Dave Walker, the founder and CEO of the Institute, and I have really genuinely enjoyed the creation of these podcasts over the last couple of months, uh, particularly the guests that I've gotten to talk to. And as our aspiration as as a collective, as a network, as a community of business to small business professionals, We really are looking at 2023 as an opportunity to stretch our collective minds around the challenge of supporting small businesses. And while much was learned in those early days of COVID and frankly was exemplary in so many different enterprises stepping up and stepping in to assist small businesses, I think here we are now three years later. Uh, almost to the day, and we're thinking about, okay, we learned a lot from helping small businesses. What more can be done than simply selling our products and services to them? And I think there's a genuine aspiration, at least on behalf of of our m- member leadership um, to, to do precisely that. So with that, um, today we're going to talk about uh, an absolutely extraordinary essay that I uh, that uh, one of our uh, podcast speakers here uh, created back in started back in the fall and really is a, has evolved. It's not published yet, but it introduces the notion of uh, the economics of compassion. Now, this essay had me at hello because I loved that title, that concept, that there was the two words that you do not. I don't think I've ever seen those two words in a sentence together, Um, even at opposite ends of a a sentence. And the idea of framing economics in the form of compassion and framing compassion in the form of economics is something that really, I hope, stretches your mind as much as it stretches mine. So without further ado, we want to launch into this by introducing the man who wrote this essay and really introduced this phrase, economics of compassion, Derek Peoples. Derek, welcome. Thank you, Dave. It's great to be here. Give us a little background on yourself. Where have you been? Where are you now? Um, A little bit about your experience in uh, advocacy for the small business community. Sure,
1: and I'll try to keep it brief, but you know, I started my career in banking and um and was in small business banking um right after college up until the um first economic downturn, the financial crisis, so around 2008-2009 as bankers were being uh, let go, left and right. Uh it was my um kind of had an epiphany that I would jump and start doing work in community and economic development uh, because I saw a lot of the challenges that my uh, small business clients were facing. Um, And and so that's really kind of where I diverted my career and um, been doing economic development, working with small businesses, um, really bringing organizations together. So a lot of my work has been associational. Working for associations that support local economies around the country. And currently, I'm the senior policy director of uh, advocacy uh, for the inclusive economy portfolio at the American Sustainable Business Network. And we're a national organization, membership based, uh, that includes impact investors, business owners, and uh, state based alliances. Uh, And we all work together to. Build sustainable economies, and we support about two hundred fifty thousand businesses around the country. Most of them are local, and
0: all of them are small. That's that's awesome, and and I I actually had no idea the number was that big two hundred fifty thousand. That's that's frankly larger than most of our members' customer bases. So I think that's that's uh, uh, kudos to you guys for building that out. Um, I want to introduce our second speaker. Um, uh, who will with me provide questions and color commentary to this discussion around Derek's essay uh Christopher Johnson from Wells Fargo welcome Christopher
2: thanks Dave appreciate the opportunity to be here um so just by a quick way of background I actually did the opposite uh I started my career in uh policy and government uh and spent the first couple of years in Washington DC I've also done some work uh in economic development um and that was kind of the uh the changeover point, it was kind of half constituent representation, half uh, capital financing, um, and then actually ended up moving over to the banking industry, um, although I am on the uh, the foundation side. Um, so before joining Wells Fargo, I worked for another smaller regional bank uh, doing corporate social responsibility work, um, still some community grant making and other community investments and those types of things. Uh, at Wells Fargo, I'm now part of the Wells Fargo Foundation. I work on a team that focuses on small business growth philanthropy, Uh, And more specifically, I manage a portfolio focused on product and innovation. Um, The way I kind of describe that is essentially trying to find the intersection of uh, uh, impact philanthropy and then longer-term opportunities on the business side. So uh, an example of that may be um, working with nonprofits or foundations or academic institutions to test out uh, new underwriting strategies, for example – uh, proving out the concept um, and then kind of bringing that back into the bank, making the pitch and saying this is something we could scale up and actually create a more inclusive uh, and hopefully more profitable product down the road. So, um, been doing that for about two years now at Wells, um, and just excited to be here. Um, it's challenging but but really exciting work.
0: And and Chris, I'll just say that that I know of no other organization, at least within our network or really beyond our network, that has someone like you with this um, kind of extraordinary job title that really is part of your giving of wells fargo giving they've actually put you in charge of product and innovation to really draw together as you describe the 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 um the business benefit with the benefit to the recipients of of what you guys do so kudos to wells for both recognizing the opportunity and recognizing you and your talents so with that i i I want to just kick it off, Derek, um, in asking you to talk a little bit about prosperity and talk about how you believe we collectively um, have thought about prosperity in the past. And how do we think about prosperity now? Sure.
1: Well, you know, I think that we we started thinking about prosperity uh, that's been more concentrated on marginalized communities uh since the killing of George Floyd uh and, and i would say that you know looking at all of the efforts of um big business but all the way down to you know your local coffee shop that have all um recognize uh, the inequities that we see in our economy um, that not just has to do with race, but has to do with um, the impact on workers. uh, That has to do with um, single parents that may have a desire to start a business, but uh, face the barrier of access. And when we look at and think about prosperity, we're also starting to think about our economy and and how we can um, look at how we shift our mindset back from being just a consumer uh, to being a citizen. And we're seeing this in our conversations around climate change, our conversations around green businesses, It's really about building an economy and creating an economy because all of us as individuals have the power to create economies in our local neighborhoods, but creating an economy that works for all, uh, that allows for more participation, that allows for Americans and individuals to carve out a life uh, based on their own imagination.
0: Chris, you you know, you've, you sit at the heart of a lot of decision-making of investing in small business. That's what banks do, um, is create that, uh, that access to capital, um, that small businesses so dearly require. What, what do you think has been held of highest value in, frankly, your, your experience as a lobbyist, your experience with a bank? you know, as, as we quote value what small businesses especially uh, contribute, what do you think uh, people point to is this is the highest value?
2: I think, you know, most people just, they, they naturally kind of associate, I think, have trust for small businesses just because that's for most parts of the country, kind of their, their everyday experience. Um, I think one of the things that's often lost is just the scale of the overall small business industry and how many are actually out there. Um, I think it's from the 30 million total small businesses, which is just a huge number and actually represents a, the the majority of, of hiring in the country. Um, I think especially these days, you kind of lose that because most of the news tends to focus on the the very largest kind of big corporate entities. And um, I think they kind of take up a lot of the uh, the the news cycle and, and the attention, but um, I think it's good just to keep perspective and just recognize, like, there are so many small businesses out there. They are, you know, an essential part of everyday life. They employ millions of people. They generate, you know, billions or hundreds of billions of dollars towards the economy. Um, I think doing everything you can to to kind of help that ecosystem is really important. Um, cause if you lose it, it's very difficult to get back. Um, and it's the type of thing where I think if, if it does go away, um, you know, you may have someone that can kind of fill in the gap, but the end result is something that is much more kind of concentrated and centralized. I think you lose a lot of that shared prosperity.
0: And and I, I couldn't agree more. I think that, you know, the mindset that basically is that small business are not as valuable as large enterprises. And study after study after study, you know, presents facts and figures of, the impact that small businesses have in the aggregate at scale uh, for contribution uh, it, towards employment, contributions towards growth, contributions toward productivity. All of the things that we hold near and dear to our heart as uh, the free world leader of capitalism are things that frankly are devalued greatly uh, when it comes to small businesses. Um, Derek, what what do you think are specifically the limitations of our of, of frankly prosperity and of specifically the prosperity of small businesses across all different uh sizes and shapes and flavors what what would, what were the limitations that the the pandemic and then george floyd and then the supply chain meltdown what what were really the the changes to those limitations that you think people uh, identified with and really formed the basis for, we got to do this differently?
1: Well, you know, (laughs) I think, um, obviously, you know, when you have social unrest, there are various factors that play into that. Um, But it all comes back to um, the economy, you know, when we talk about high crime areas in Chicago um, and we talk about the solution to that, uh, it's either to create you know more police or to create more jobs. Um, we always say that you know having more jobs and and having more access is, is a way to solve those issues, but I think with what we're learning now. Um, and, and kind of what we talk about in the economics of compassion is, is that, you know, the whole concept really just recognizes that the current economic system is limited in its ability to address the needs of society, um, but also addressing the needs of the environment. And and so the whole concept of economics of compassion really just seeks to shift mindsets towards, or more holistic understanding of value. So it's important, you know, these, and and recognizing that, you know, there's limitations in our conventional economic systems. It's important to know that these systems really operate on a narrow definition of what value is. And it does not account for the externalities such as social impact or environmental sustainability. And so, this really means that these economic systems are unable to adequately address pressing societal issues such as poverty and inequality, but also climate change. And obviously, as we saw through the pandemic, you know, public health crisis. And mm-hmm. so, in reality, the current economic system really exasper- uh, exasperates these issues. And so the importance of shifting mindsets towards what a more holistic understanding of value cannot really be overstated. And I think that starts by looking at the way that we collect data. And so a lot of our work involves um, participatory action research to determine where to make the best impact investments in communities. Um, And, you're really looking at you know, the other, the other area of economics of compassion is really rooted in this methodology of asset-based community development. And that builds on the assets that are already found in the community and mobilizes individuals such as an entrepreneur, associations such as B2SMB, and institutions such as Wells Fargo, and other academic institutions that really come together to build on the assets not really concentrated on the needs because a lot of our data is really super focused on what a community doesn't have and when you think about philanthropy and the way we make our investments this actually extracts a lot of investment opportunities from these communities i I like to tell people it's kind of like if you take if, if if you take 20,000 or, or, you know, if you take uh, a certain number of families in a community uh, that are making $20,000 a year, you know, ultimately we'll think that, okay, that's, that's a community living in poverty and there's probably a bunch of problems. But what we don't take into effect that if you take 5,000 families that are making an average household income of 20,000 a year that's $100 million a year annually in spending power. But you're not gonna be able to build up that community of 99% of that spending power is being extracted. And so how can we shift our investment practices? How can we shift our economic development practices that keeps the flow of the dollars circulating in communities? And, and this is a way and an approach towards prosperity because you're allowing people that are most affected to actually be involved and in, in actually creating the data that's needed because they know the opportunities more than anybody. You got to think about how many people are just working and living in the informal economy that are unbanked, you know, but, um, and I can say this as a black man, I mean, during the pandemic, you know barbershops were closed down and but i had to be on zoom and you best believe i still got my hair cut you know (laughs) (laughs) and so minority and communities since we've been so exiled from the economy there's a huge informal economy that often is not researched yeah i think that's
2: that's actually really interesting um When you talk about kind of the power of community, because I think that's actually a pretty old and established model where that kind of happened frequently, where you had, uh, especially like when there were large groups of immigrants coming to the country in the early 20th century, we had groups that were um, essentially kind of shut out from the larger system. But what you did is come together as a community, you know, you patronize each other, you set up shops, you kind of uh give business to each other and then hopefully it grows from there um so I think the the model is definitely established and kind of well proven like the difficult part these days is just again that like in in the current environment you lose a little bit of that community connectivity uh and Derek like you said like it's almost it's because we're difficult to trap the the economic gains within they kind of have a tendency to flow out and then a lot of the uh, the positive impact kind of disappears so I feel like that's kind of the, the challenge is to figure out how to take that model and apply it to a uh uh, 21st century mindset.
0: And Chris, I, I, you know, not to put you on the spot, but I, I would ask you as someone who obviously is a keen observer of the banking industry or the lending industry's approach to these limitations that were kind of identified in the last three years of who got served. Um, do you see dialogue emerging within the banking industry and the lending industry as a whole that is attempting to formulate a response to those limitations.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I see conversations all the time, both within Wells Fargo and even among uh, colleagues and peers. That I think there's kind of a widespread acknowledgement that uh, there's work that needs to be done, um, and I think it's it's kind of twofold. On the one hand, like there's the uh, acknowledgement that you know for the larger economy, you have to find something that um, is just more efficient or better able to to get capital out because, I mean, that's the basis of the economy is basically Mm -hmm. giving people the capital, they need to uh, start new institutions or businesses and grow. Um, And a lot of the way the banking industry works is, is kind of the tried and true, you know, hundred year old credit assessment and underwriting guidelines um, that, that have worked well. Um, are generally very conservative because um, that's part of the culture um, but at the same time may not again be the the best or um, the most efficient way to do things just given the new environment so yeah I think there's constantly a, a, a need and an interest to to figure out how they can improve that uh, and again, it's both to improve the the overall economy but also frankly to, to help the bottom line because the the more innovation you can build into the the products and services you offer the more people are attracted to what you're what you're offering the the more products and services you have you build market mm-hmm. share you build revenue you build profit so it's kind of a win-win all around
0: so derek let me torture uh, a a football metaphor here <laughs> both as former <laughs> players and uh huge nfl fans as i know we both are so i i, I want to try to guide this conversation this dialogue towards more prescriptive even a playbook of how do we build this framework, this mindset grounded in an economics of compassion? So, I guess my question is: Who's on the team? Who are the stakeholders in overcoming these limitations that, frankly, have ta- challenged uh, a more inclusive prosperity for all small businesses?
1: Yeah. Well, you know, obviously, we we all need to be at the table, and, but when, when you look at, at communities and, and, and even, you know, people that have been overlooked, um, let's talk about Black, Indigenous, and women of color, for instance. Mm -hmm. Um, because, you know, um, women of color, entrepreneurs and business owners are the the most marginalized and within the BIPOC community globally. And yet, despite being the most marginalized and impacted, um, women of color are also the most entrepreneurial and they're also key agents of change. And so UN data shows that women of color give back up to 90% of their income to their families and communities as opposed to men who give back up to 30%. Women start more small and medium enterprises and their motivation is often not profit maximizing, but solving social problems in their communities. And so by walk, which (laughs) it's just an easier way to to term it in conversation, Black Indigenous women of color, BIPOC entrepreneurs, create more revenue with less capital than men, and there is a base of those ready, willing, and able to move more capital for even greater impact. And and so we're we're making these connections. And again, this is the power of association because if we start looking at assets that are often overlooked, uh, associations really have the power. Uh, to to bring these communities uh, in from economic exile. And so um, when you look at COVID-19, that also shed light on the power women can have in leadership. So in a study of 194 countries found that pandemic responses were systemically better in women-led countries. Data also shows that COVID-19 deaths were lower in states with a female governor, Uh, and (laughs) the data's out there. But more and more studies show that women are vital agents of profound impact for ending poverty and providing solutions to the climate chaos and the impact on low income and communities of color. So, however, despite all the data showing how women are key agents of change, little funding flows to them, Uh, given deep unconscious biases and see and this is the mindset because you also got to think that you know just the history of of when i talk about economic exile and we all know the stories of redlining uh and things like that and and things that we were barred from as far as access to capital to generate black wealth and this what we're now calling kind of um trauma-informed impact uh, ha, has really um, caused a lot of, uh, of trauma and fear of, of opening up a checking account. And, you know, and fear of when they go to get a business loan um, that they, or, or, or a lot of them are not even wanting to show their name as a business owner on paperwork for a business loan. So they're going out and they're getting white partners that they're giving 49% ownership to. Uh, So (laughs) these are kind of some of the things that and some of the methods we're taking to try to overcome. But um, again, the conventional economic system, we also have to think about the trauma that is caused um, for marginalized communities that are actually trying to start a business.
0: And Chris, over to you, I, I um, again, this might be an unfair question, but uh, as the banking and lending community represents an incredibly important resource to small businesses at every you know in every community, how how do you think the mindset is changing, as you said it, it has, around what what role you as stakeholders will play in developing a new a new prosperity for all communities
2: yes i think part of it goes back to just kind of revamping the the products and services and the way that uh business is done just to to make sure that you're you're kind of you're considering everything when it comes to uh like credit and underwriting standards um, and a lot of that's already changing. We're seeing a lot of influence, even from like the, uh, the FinTechs and kind of the use of uh, big data and AI to um, look at things beyond kind of the, the traditional, you know, credit stack or uh, underwriting methods um, that in some cases are actually, or have the potential to be more, more effective or, or uh, reduce risk across the board. So I think those, those will generally help. I think the other big piece of it, and this is another uh, huge area that we concentrate on within our group, um, in addition to the access to capital it's the um it's kind of the knowledge building piece and capacity building mm-hmm. um so totally understand like there's a lot of people that have negative connotations about banks and some of it's based on experience, some of it's based on just you know the overall uh, uh kind of shared knowledge of yeah it's it's difficult to get money from a bank unless you already have money or you're well established and so how do you get to that point um but at the same time. The, the solution isn't necessarily to say, well, I'm just going to not deal with the bank. Uh, in many ways, you know, at some point you have to, uh, especially if you, you have the goal of starting the business and really growing it. So I think the the urgency is to, to kind of get people, number one, just like educated on exactly what the bank does and what they're looking for, uh, and giving them the power to get to the point where they could actually put together a successful application uh, and actually get access to capital or, or other services from a bank. And even then it may not be a bank to start off There's there's other organizations. There's like community development financial institutions. Um, there's various like fintechs out there. But I think just getting people introduced to the the overall financial system is a crucial first step. Um, and frankly, it, it's kind of a self-fulfilling process. I think that the more people you kind of get uh, integrated into the system, you start to build up numbers, you start to build up more comfort. Um, hopefully you start to see new enterprises and ventures form. You see more economic gains. And then it kind of, snowballs and builds upon itself. But uh, that's that's how I kind of see it. You have to attack it from both sides, the, the excess capital piece and the, uh, the, the kind of capacity building and, and uh, knowledge portion as well.
0: So I'm walking through one of the main vineyards at Chimney Rock Winery, which is our uh, destination for the 2023 Leaders Forum. And I got a proposition to you on this beautiful morning. You should absolutely plan on coming to the Fifth Annual Leaders Forum in Napa for one purpose, and that's to make connections, more connections, better connections, deeper connections. I mean, if history is any judge, you will meet, greet, find new friends, find new partners. It's an absolutely fabulous networking event. So our 2022 Leaders Forum in Napa has aged very well, not to do too many winery puns here. But we really saw many top to top partnerships and exchanges grew out of that two day event last year. And every year it seems like we get better. Um, Sure, we'll have major C-suite execs keynoting, but we're going to spend a lot more time fostering those intros and that dialogue and those collaborations between our 150 attendees. That'll be a big part of our agenda. Now some of you may recall guys that our leaders forum sold out in 2022 so it's not too early to save your spot after all this is our top-to-top networking and strategy exchange for you senior b to smb execs you're going to meet your peers you're going to meet your future partners you're going to see resources you're going to meet mentors or how about it make some friends nice to have in this very lonely business of selling to small businesses So link in the bio to our Leaders Forum 23 event page. Tickets are there too, May 17th and 18th. That's a Wednesday, Thursday, so you can stay the weekend. Welcome to the Leaders Forum 23, thank you all. Derek, you described um, a new framework for collaboration. Could you unpack that a little bit for us? And specifically, who who's collaborating? Who are the who are the key players in that collaboration?
1: Sure. I mean, so, you know, I think uh I've said before, you know, talking about the power of association. And so when you think about uh associations like ours, like B2SMB, like the American Sustainable Business Network, like the American Independent Business Alliance, I mean, these are organizations that understand kind of the intricacies that are involved um, for a local and small business owner's well-being. And so, you know, recognizing the importance of building an inclusive economy uh, is going to require looking at serving the needs of small and local businesses, but also place-based entrepreneurs, as well as the unique needs of communities um so you know building the peer networks strengthening place-based financing through cdfis um you know so um as christopher referred um community development financial institutions uh these organizations we've built up a repository of cdfis around the country that are invested in um businesses uh, that are invested in their local economies so we are seeing some sustainable community developments that that are working. Um we are seeing communities that are forming their own development corporations and looking at uh taking back ownership of their land in their communities um in efforts to prevent uh not only housing displacement but small business displacement and um you know to keep the assets in the community that that really keep the uh, circulation of the dollar flowing and and so um, there are also, for instance, <laughs> a lot of um, corporations that are really kind of starting to come to the table and providing a lot of resources. you know um, one of the initiatives that I'm hearing a lot more about is character based lending, and I know that there are a lot of banks out there that are looking at that. Um, you know we also have to think about Uh, we talk a lot about how from a consumer perspective, we also educate consumers on the impact of their dollar. You know, um, your community is going to get more of a return if you go buy that cup of coffee at your local coffee shop versus a Starbucks and nothing against Starbucks. I love Starbucks, but, (laughs) um, you know, anytime I buy a Starbucks in Cincinnati, I know that a percentage of that dollar is going back to Seattle. Now that's fine. You know, you need those businesses that provide jobs, Um, but there needs to be a healthy balance. And so a lot of that is educating consumers uh, on on the power that their dollar has, you know? And um, there are a lot of foundations that are looking at uh, new frameworks of philanthropy. So, you know, when we talk about philanthropy, Um, and when we even talk about shifting mindsets, I don't want to ramble here, but a lot of what shifting mindsets is that, you know, we're philanthropy. And and again, I have to apply for grants every day. So, I mean, it's, uh, but a lot of foundations are learning that philanthropy also needs to change its mindset and its framework because we're learning that it often creates a lot of that scarcity mindset in communities where you have the most marginalized pitted against each other and uh, creating this false sense of of competition um, for for dollars that are out there. And so um, all of these really require a different way that we think about an economy that can also be productive and profitable, but that... Reestablishes
0: that middle class.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And and you know from from your perspective, Chris, if you were seeking collaborators, um, particularly in the larger business, the small business, enterprise community, what kind of partners would you be looking for to advance what you believe you can contribute? Um to to really the overall prosperity of small small businesses.
2: Yeah, so they get it, it actually goes back to kind of that rethinking the the framework of philanthropy and kind of the what we're looking to achieve and and the resources that we have at our disposal. Um, there's definitely the value of kind of classic philanthropy, which is you know providing grants and supporting organizations. And um, sometimes it's applied across a large scale or a large geography. Sometimes it's very concentrated. Uh, but kind of the cool thing about Uh, my position, what I've been trying to do and been given the freedom to do is to think of philanthropy dollars really more as catalytic. Um, So when I'm looking at organizations, uh, you know, I'm always thinking about the impact, but I'm really looking for um, kind of big ideas that we can kind of test out and do something differently. Um, And then potentially if we prove it out, uh, kind of provide that framework and then have something that'd be readily scalable, um, assuming you can get more dollars in either through additional philanthropic funds or even investments or, um, from the community, whatever the case may be, but that that's really what I'm looking for is kind of the scalability piece, um, and and investing in the structures that have the potential to generate that kind of, uh, large level systemic change.
0: And I'm sure a commitment as well to, you know, to the mission of, of frankly, uh, helping those uh, uh, small businesses of all kinds uh, and in all locations to be more successful.
2: Yeah, absolutely. So for me, that's, that's definitely kind of the guiding light. Um, You know, I I work on a team that's focused on small business growth. So that that's what we're trying to do. Um, I do have colleagues that are working in other areas and and kind of pursuing similar strategies, but yeah, that that's kind of the, the end goal. And it's, it's definitely not short-term we're thinking like years instead of months here, but um, you know, I I think we have the, the, the potential to do it, just given that the resources that are available, and um, I think it's perfectly kind of a, the right moment in time where people are willing to rethink these ideas and um, and do things a little bit differently.
0: Derek, in in uh, as you've evolved your essay around the economics of compassion, which you know we hope to be at the forefront of promoting to all of our audience, all of our five thousand plus members as a must read, you use some phrases that that I took down in note form to say I really want to understand exactly what you mean by this so there's there's three of them and I'd like you to briefly define what you mean and what what's the action really behind it uh the first one is appreciative inquiry
1: sure well um the best way to think about that is is when you're meeting someone, and, and whether it's an investor, or whether it's you know um, it's an entrepreneur that you're looking to invest in, appreciative inquiry is really about <clears throat> appreciating someone's gifts versus trying to first recognize where they're deficient. Um, and again, this is the natural mind state or mindset of problem solving. You know, when our best friend or when our significant other comes to us with a problem, um, we immediately uh, have the mindset to solve that problem um, when most of the time they may just want you to listen. And so appreciative inquiry also stresses the fact that, you know, there's no reason that a single mother who is interested in starting a business can be having a conversation with a, with, um, with a doctor um uh, who is possibly looking to invest in affordable housing you know so and thinking about how we convene it's about bringing all people together of different walks of life to focus on what's possible versus to focus on um what their problems are
0: terrific um another one that may be self-explanatory but i wanted to i want you to describe it really in terms of your framework Participatory action.
1: Sure. And so, you know, what's really kind of behind that is is, uh, also touches on this concept of asset-based community development. And so when we think about just what that does is it draws out the strengths and the successes in a community's shared history as its starting point for change. And so, among all the assets that exist in a community, um, you know, participatory action research really pays particular attention to the assets that are inherent in social relationships. I've talked about this informal economy, um, as evident in formal and in informal associations and, and network. So, um, it's 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 really the community. It's a community-driven approach. Um, that involves keeping with the principles and practice of participatory approaches, um, where active participation and empowerment uh, and the prevention of disempowerment are the basis of practice. So I know I'm getting very technical, but it's really a strategy directed towards sustainable economic development that is community driven.
0: (laughs) Yeah, but I think I think I, I get it. I mean, I think that maybe Chris, you can jump in here, too. But I think if you look at a community only in terms of the specific categories and sizes of businesses that are represented and you neglect to really uh, to, to at least ask the question, well, how are these businesses actually connected with each other? Do they all reside on the stream, same street? Do they reside in a historic district do they design, do they reside in an area in a trade area, where all the consumers that they serve happen to be of a particular background uh, or ethnicity, so I, I, I get it, and I think that that. Um, Christopher. Ha, I, please feel free to riff on this, the notion of looking deeper into the connective tissue frankly uh, within a community that is just as much a part of their prosperity as anything else.
2: Yeah, I, I would agree. And I think that's, that's one of the, the largest challenges that's out there is just kind of figure, figuring out where those commonalities are. Um, this is the biggest strength of the small business industry or ecosystem is just the, the sheer size and number of people that are part of it. Um, the challenge is that there's so many differences and it's so diverse that in order to kind of identify where those kind of commonalities are and to actually bring people together kind of in support of a common cause, um, it can be difficult unless you can kind of articulate the value in a way that everyone kind of understands and can see the, the benefit uh, for, for essentially their business and kind of their community. Um, so I, I think it's kind of the, the largest challenge and the largest strength at the same time. Right.
0: And, and I think we've talked about this before, Chris, is is that those inquiries don't have to be asked from afar. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's not like, it's not like you have to make those inquiries distant to reinforce their objectivity you know that there's there's more truth in the fact or the the numbers that reflect what's going on in a particular community versus just simply asking the businesses and the people in the community what do you think holds you together
2: yeah i totally agree i mean i think one of the the big issues um or one of the things that's causing a lot of the issues today is just uh, everything is kind of a top down approach um, and there's right. often thought research that goes into it, but at the end of the day, there's immense value that can be had from actually just talking to the people in the communities and that you know in our uh, in our situation that we're we're trying to ultimately benefit like if you don't have that perspective, it's really hard to come up with a uh an effective solution and something that's actually gonna be positively received
1: so and part uh, of uh and that's that's exactly kind of stresses the the need for participatory action research because that really gets at the social connective tissue by actually training people in the community to think about the possibilities of what their local economy could look like that maintains the historical community character.
0: Exactly. Um, so uh, Derek, let's one more, you know, maybe give examples versus a deposition to uh, sustainable development.
1: Well, I, I think one aspect to look at it as we're talking about this and as we talk about economic development is the real estate ecosystem. And And so when you look at sustainable community development, you know, looking at all of the different aspects, such as um, understanding kind of the, um, the social and the health determinants behind a real estate development. You know, when we think about economic development, uh, it's really about creating jobs and building wealth. And so in Cincinnati, you know, like a ton of resources are really spent trying to recruit big business to Cincinnati because the data shows that that creates jobs, Um, but it really doesn't help much. If And a lot of businesses don't choose Cincinnati because their data shows that we don't have the talent. And that talent would suggest that, do you have 50,000 people in this certain community that have college degrees um, in this area where land is currently cheap? (laughs) And so, you know, and then you look at all the tax incentives that are giving for a big business to move to a a city. And so the flips out of that is just let's look at putting more resources into retaining the small and local businesses that are already there. And so as bankers, as we're looking at, you know, a traditional or a different type of framework, one of the aspects is that, you know, is this business employees are the employees of this business are they local and when we're looking at health determinants we're also looking at you know if if an employee lives on the other side of town what does it cost them to actually work if they have to think about child care or if they have to think about getting on a bus and transferring three buses to get to a job and i'm talking about you know a lot of these issues we see in marginalized communities but you know one economic indicator to look at that are local economic multipliers, like how much, do- how many dollars are leaking out of a community. And then we begin to look at frameworks that keep that dollar flowing. And then that's how we impact different social and health determinants.
0: You may be able to quote this number better than I can because I remember what I remember is the number is incredibly low. But in the average urban minority, community the percent of dollars that actually stay in the community that are spent oh yeah is it is it 17 percent? do i remember that correctly or something yes and
1: there yeah and there needs to be some more research behind this but the naacp came out with a statistic a while ago um as we were hearing more about after the george floyd killing and we were hearing more about black wall street and the community in tulsa um which is where we have one of the first race riots. And in this community in Tulsa, back during the early 1900s, you had the flow of a dollar circulating in a community 80 times before it left that community. And that was because you had black doctors, you had black grocery store owners, black bankers, you know, and a lot of that was due to segregation, of course. But when you look at the flow of the dollar today, Yes, the flow of the dollar circulates in um in a white community for about twenty days, in a Jewish community for about thirty, I think in Hispanic communities for about seventeen, but in black communities the flow of the dollar leaves in like fifteen minutes, something like that.
0: Wow. It's extraordinary. You know, I would refer everybody to um check out what Eric Groves, the founder of Alignable, has written on uh This this drain of local uh, money away to either large corporations or um, just just out of the community and uh, has even created a a terrific initiative called My Money Stays Local just to draw consumer attention to the notion of, hey, when you buy from Amazon, not a single penny of that is coming back to your community. Um, and and paying for the things that uh frankly you you demand, whether it's schools or highways or or uh, whatever you need or the growth of business um so just kind of in summary, Christopher, I'm gonna put you on the spot first. Um, could you feedback what you think are the summary benefits of what Derek has put forth in? this economics of compassion uh, framework?
2: Yeah, I mean, uh, I think there's a lot of great stuff in here, but I think the thing that really sticks out for me, uh, or I keep coming back to it, is just the power of community. Um, and like we were just talking about, like if, if you can kind of create that ecosystem where you, you have a situation where a dollar goes in and it kind of circulates, and um, there's just a notion that, you know, everyone is has kind of this common link. Uh, and then, you know, you have businesses supporting other businesses supporting small businesses supporting consumers uh it it just tends to work out well for everybody uh and there's absolute economic benefits that come out of that um i would only say that the one thing is that you you have to consider the uh the economics to get something like that started uh while it's great to say you know we should all support local small businesses the reality for a lot of people is you know if, if product or service costs more in a lot of instances, you're going to go after the cheapest one. And, you know, even if you you have the best intentions and you want to uh, keep that dollar local, um, you know, if you have a choice to make between, you know, uh, putting food on the table or, or even just meeting basic necessities, you're going to go for the the cheaper option. Um, so I think that's, that's one of the areas that we just have to keep in mind is that you have to create something that's really uh, economically sustainable all around. Um, but I think once you kind of hit that Critical mass point um, that begins to happen, uh, and then you start to see all sorts of positive benefits, and then I think it just kind of builds on each other. It's like success builds success, but getting to that point is often difficult. Um, but I'm I'm a huge believer that you know the the more you can focus on the the local scale and community, and, and kind of again uh, reach out and and have your your actions and decisions be informed by the the people that you're ultimately trying to help. Um, good things generally follow.
0: Well put, and, and I think I'd build on that by saying that. My call to action to our listeners, who again are primarily uh, leaders for uh, business to small business organizations and brands, who are currently, I'll describe them as macro participants in the, the economics of local communities, uh, in that they sell their products broadly into these communities and deliver services broadly into these services to move from that macro participant role into more of a micro stakeholder this framework basically for me at least inspires the notion that you know we we really do need uh, to become more hyper local um, we do need to become as as those who sell into this small business space uh, uh, have a greater understanding of what I think is only a, 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 a one-layer move in, the, uh, in, in kind of the, our participation in, in, in all. I mean, we tend to think in terms of maybe a regional geography, maybe a particular uh, category of offering or, or buyer subset, But to really take it down a notch, one notch, and say, no, I'm really going to look for ways in which I can more actively have a stake in the success of these communities. And that will really uh, lend courage to virtue in a lot of the things that Derek is suggesting. So, Derek, what would you like all of us to kind of take away, at least, I mean, the top two or three things that you want us to, at this point, as you're continuing to evolve this idea in this framework what are the things that you want us to take away? Sure well you really just
1: kind of touched on one of them that I think is critical <clears throat> is that um, you know the, one way to think about an economics of compassion from an economic perspective is to think about how to link the micro assets to the macro environment mm-hmm. right and you know, it's our corporations and our institutions that can help think about how to connect local to the global economy. And so now I bet eventually you'll start hearing terms like uh, globalization um, because mm-hmm. the global economy does matter to what Christopher is saying. Um, and that's why we should start thinking globally about this, but I think another way to think about economics of compassion is really to think about um, how we can create prosperity in a way that leaves a more healthier society and a planet for our descendants. Mm-hmm. Um, because that matters too. You know, there's a huge cost to our economy, to our global economy if we don't deal with social issues, if we don't deal with climate issues, um, we see it happening today in front of our eyes. And I think, um, you know, we're seeing this backlash against ESG and we're seeing the backlash against, you know, woke capitalism and all these uh, negative narratives that are starting to come to the front. But, you know, I've been talking to people in our networks, you know, the one way to counter that is that look, we're just talking about doing a good business that leaves a healthy society and a, and a, and a planet that we can continue to live on for mm-hmm. our future descendants. And, you know, let's stop all the rhetoric and, and let's figure out what we can do together that we can't do alone.
0: Well put. I, I can't remember, I can't give a good attribution here because I, but I, because I can't remember actually who wrote this, but the gist of it was prosperity is is leaving your children a better world than the one in which you live. Um, that's the definition of prosperity, and I think uh, it ties together so many of the things we've been talking about. Guys, this has been absolutely terrific. Um, I I hope that this is, uh, you know, a, a, a heavy read for or listen for our uh, for our community but one in which uh, hopefully a lot of thought is provoked. And as we continue to participate at more of a macro and micro level in making a more prosperous small business, business to small business ecosystem and market space, that these are many of the principles that we will continue to adhere to. So I appreciate you, Derek, for really bringing this to the forefront. And Chris, I I appreciate you in, at least today, representing the B2SMB enterprises, uh, not just banking and finance, but really all of us who are selling products into the small business communities, who frankly, and I'll use the word woke, who woke up in that year, three years ago of COVID and George Floyd and inflation and supply chain collapse and all of those things that were hitting us really shook us by the shoulders and said, we need to think about all of this differently. Thank you guys very, very much. Thank you, Dave.
2: Thank you, Dave. Thanks, Christopher. And thank you, Derek. Appreciate it.
0: Appreciate it.